In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Now, last week we wrapped up chapter 1 and we spoke about the, the hypocrisy of the, the sacrifice that the people were offering God. And it was like a sacrifice with blemish. And so this was obviously something that was not pleasing to the Lord. And it prompts us to, to think about the type of sacrifice that we give God and sometimes we just give him the scraps because of our weaknesses and the important thing is just never to justify that and never to excuse it and say it's fine and to say you know everybody does it or whatever but just to be honest with ourselves and to give God our whole hearts as he says um, to, to worship and to love the Lord with all our hearts all our our soul all our strength with our whole being all right so that's generally what we spoke about as we wrapped up chapter 1 last week. Okay, so we're going to pick up with chapter 2 from the very first verse. So he says, And now, O priests, this is the command this command is for you. If you'll not listen, if you'll not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I'll send a curse upon you all and I'll curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I'll rebuke your offspring and spread dung upon your faces, the dung of your offerings, and I will put you out of my presence." So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may hold, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear. And he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and no wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and men should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble in the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. All right, so I know that was... A big little, a big chunk right there. So take a moment to read those nine verses one more time and then we'll dig right in and talk all about it. So just take a moment to read those first nine verses one more time.
All right. Now, who is this accusation directed to? Who's he speaking to more specifically right here? It's like the fourth word <laughs> in this little section. The priests. The priests. Very good. So he's talking to me. He's talking to Father Joseph. <laughs> he's talking to all of the priests. All right. Now, of course, the previous section, he was talking to the people that were bringing their sacrifices. But now he's digging into the, the whole matter and the problem at hand by calling out the priests who are accepting these blemished sacrifices or offerings, okay? So, this accusation is not only to the people, and he's not only directing his criticism to the congregation, but he's saying, you're all at fault, okay? Like, everybody is not justified here, okay? Everybody is culpable, everybody is struggling with some sort of problem, okay? And he makes it very specific that the priests were not doing their part. They're not doing their job, okay? Now, if you look at the the standard, if you would, or the expectation that we as Christians have, you have to admit that it's not all the same. Now, of course, our standard is Christ, and we are expected to to be Christ. That's just a fundamental expectation that we all have no matter what. But the way in which we fulfill that looks different depending on our role. Okay, The expectations for me as a priest to be Christ looks a little bit different than the expectations of the congregation or a member in the lady to be Christ. So any servant or a priest more specifically, a bishop or anybody in that role of leadership is expected to to hold a different standard. Okay? And this should really convict the heart of any servant who's hearing this message. Okay? Because we we all are called to serve and we're all called to model that example of Christ right so we're we're called to a higher standard okay we're we're called to a higher standard to serve God to be mediators between the people and God just as Christ was a mediator between humanity and the father the priest serves that very same role okay now St. Cyril says, it is in fact by the apathy of those in charge that indifference of piety develops, or, or that sort of lukewarmness, okay? He says that it is by this apathy from the leadership, from those in charge, that indifference to piety develops, worsens, and is compounded. The reason is we see that Everything in life, not just the church, but if you look at a place at work, 
the leadership pretty much sets the tone. Okay, and if you think of the captain of a team or the manager, a coach of a team, whoever is leading a specific group, if they're not doing their job, if there's apathy, if there's indifference, or just pure negligence, whatever it may be, how are they going to motivate the people? How are they going to instruct the people? How are they going to guide and direct the people? Okay, so there's a greater responsibility that we have to always keep in mind as leaders, which relates to all of us because we're all called to model Christ and we're all called to serve and to function as leaders, to lead all of humanity to Christ. Okay, you can even say that we all have a spiritual priesthood. Not the same priesthood that I have. I was ordained and I'm given the, the sacrament of priesthood, the grace of priesthood. But in a sense, and this is what the scripture tells us, that there is a spiritual priesthood that applies to all humanity. Okay? So, my first question to you is, how can we fulfill that task? Right? How can I pay attention to this if, if I'm not a priest? How can I pay attention to this and still apply it? Or do I just say, oh, this isn't for me, this is for the priests? And just brush it over? Go to chapter 3. <laughs> so what do you think? How can you apply this if you're not technically a priest? Right, so I want to hear from you. What really stuck with me was something that you said earlier. Um, whether we be like teachers or religious leaders, basically, is that we're mediators. We should be bringing people to God. That we are bringing people to God. Perfect. Now, give me a practical application here. Like, how does hope bring people to God? Or how does anybody listening to this, because I'm the only priest on this Zoom meeting, so how can anybody in your shoes do that in a practical way? Very good. Something very simple, something very powerful is reaching out, giving someone your attention and asking about them. Very, very good. What else? Does anybody have something to add to that? Just maybe mirroring Christ's attributes so it gets people curious. Like the you know, when they see kindness and love and service, that they might be curious as to what makes you like that. Very good. So a lot of people see something that's unique and it raises some eyebrows and people ask and there's something special about the, the way you carry yourself, the way you talk. You know, people can tell that a Christian 
is joyful, that a Christian is not of this world. And so that becomes a testimony. I mean, I remember Pope Shenouda would always say that it is more important for us to be walking sermons than for us to give sermons. Okay, so that's a very powerful way to put it, that we ourselves have to model Christ and those attributes that it compels people towards Christ by our example. Very good. All right. Anybody else want to add to that? Okay, so if we take this concept, which is pretty significant, we, we all agree that to some extent we can participate in this role of priesthood just by virtue of our presence in mediating and, and interceding for humanity and serving as Christ and bringing others to God, we become like priests. So if we say that this applies to us, then the very next warning, which is pretty rough, <laughs> applies to all of us. And this warning that applies to all of us is probably the most intense and one of the harshest criticisms or warnings that I have seen in the scriptures. Okay, now, for those who are not functioning adequately as priests, what does he say about them? How does he put it? Like he doesn't put it lightly. How does he put it? Okay, I'll tell you the first part. So in verse 2, he says that I will curse your blessings. Okay, indeed, I have already cursed them. Yeah, but that's not even the bad part. <laughs> bad part's coming in verse 3. What does he say there? Rebuking their offspring. Okay. Rebuking their offsprings. And he will add to that what? And, and how, is he <laughs> how does he draw this imagery of this rebuke? How's it going to look like? What's he going to do? The very next word is what? I will spread what? Dung. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will spread dung upon your faces, the dung of your offerings, and I will put you out of my presence. Like, I don't know about you, but like, that just made me quiver. Like, as a priest, I'm reading this, and I'm like, that sounds harsh. I don't want dung thrown in my face. I don't know about you, but this does not sound pleasant. <laughs> and it's, it's a bit terrifying to see God who is unconditional love, who is an abundant and caring, merciful God, put it in a very bold way. And he says, like, this is no joke. Like, this is a serious matter. You know, like, 
to the extent that he says that I will throw dung, I will spread dung upon your faces. Now, remember that these are the consequences of their hypocrisy or their negligence. Okay? And he says, like, very explicitly that the reason that they were negligent, the reason that there's this hypocrisy in their offerings, that he says that what caused them to be lukewarm and hypocritical is that they didn't take it to heart. Okay? Notice that he says in, in the very first verse, Listen, you priests. If you'll not listen, you'll not lay it to heart to give glory to my name. Okay? So, he continues to like give their, this disclosure. He says, says the Lord of hosts, Then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them. Because what? You didn't lay it to heart. At the very core of their hypocrisy and their pride, at the very core of this negligence, is there's a lack of seriousness, right? It's almost like you take God for granted. You take the responsibilities that you have for as if they're insignificant. You, you scrap your obligations. You say it's not that important. I'm fine. I'm not killing anybody. I'm not doing anything terrible. You know, I'm not going out looting and <laughs> breaking stuff and stealing. And I'm not adding to the discrimination out there in the world. I'm just living my life. I'm fine. Okay. But he says, no, no, no. Like you got to take responsibility for everything happening. You got to res- take responsibility for your role as a priest, right? A priest cannot just sit back and say, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. Everybody in the congregation is lazy, but I, I'm not lazy. Everybody in the congregation is stealing or lying, but I'm not stealing or lying. Like what kind of priest would I be if I just kind of sat back and said, hey, I'm cool, <laughs> I'm doing my thing. But he says, you didn't take it to heart. You didn't like engrave this in your heart and take it seriously. Right? So at the very heart, I just want us to, to keep this in mind, especially as he's criticizing the people from one accusation to another. He's going to go back to this, that they didn't fear the Lord, that they didn't take it to heart. They took their relationship with God lightly. They they took His mercy for granted, and they just abused the love that they had. Okay, Remember, it flows from the end of chapter 1 when he says that they didn't fear Him. Okay, Again, when you don't fear God, when you don't take His words to heart, and you just take everything lightly, then you become negligent, and that is atrocious to God. You know, I don't see God 
saying he's going to spread dung upon the faces of murderers. I don't see God saying he's going to spread dung upon the faces of heretics. I, I don't know if he says this about anybody else. <laughs> but he says this about the, the hypocrites. And like that's where I'm convicted. Okay? Any comments or questions about that specific concept? Okay, we're going to go to the end of this section right here, the last couple of verses of this section. But I just want to make sure nobody has anything to ask or no questions or comments before we move on beyond that. sprout on your faces is not a pleasant imagery but I what sticks with me is the last part of verse 3 and I will put you out of my presence it's like God is turning his back on us mm. wow and I think that to me that's more terrifying yes that's you're right that is probably worse <laughs> that's way would like to think that you're alienated from God that is like that whole verse is just scary <laughs> and that's a very good point that you make like I, I, I think I mean to me I agree with you 100% I'll, I'll take the dung on my face if I'm not alienated from God <laughs> but I think that last part is just like it doesn't get worse than that like that's your source of life right that's your, your whole existence depends on Him. And whenever He says that, I will put you out of my presence, it's, it's terrifying. Okay, now, if we continue to the end of this section, what is He, um, what is he revealing as He criticizes the negligence and the hypocrisy of the priests and he uses this um, simple example of what a real priest should look like right and he says that um, my covenant was with Levi okay we know that the Levites were the priests okay and then he continues to talk about how they had a covenant of life and peace, that um, this covenant that he gave them um, served as a bond with, with fear. They feared him, right? They stood in awe of his name, right? They walked in peace and uprightness. And that they turned many from iniquity. Okay? So, he goes on to use this as the, 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 the model that judges them. Okay? Like, this is the standard. This is what you're expected. Right? And so he, he goes on to say that you have fallen from this example. Okay? What are... 
those specific qualities that they fail to do. What does he expose? As he uses this model, he says like, this is the way you should have lived. This is the way you should have served. But you, like, you did this and this and this. What are those accusations that he mentions here? I have no problem with awkward silence. <laughs> what do you think? What does he actually criticize here? He mentions a specific function that they're failing to accomplish. What is it? Peace. Say that again. Peace, okay. So, so they are not upholding peace. So that that's a part of the model that they were called to to look at. Like he says in verse six, that the the covenant that he had with Levi was that he walked with me in peace and uprightness. So that's a very good point. Okay. What else? What does he say? Look at look at just verse eight and nine. These last two verses. He starts verse 8 saying, But you have... And then he continues to go on his list. Right? Here's the model. Here's the example. This is the way that you should live. And then he goes, But you... This is, this is the problem I have with you. They haven't kept his way. So he says, you turned aside from the way. Okay? And then he adds to that. In addition to turning aside from which, by the way, is the first accusation. He's not even talking about the way they have affected the people. The first accusation is about the condition of their own life. He's exposing the problem with their own heart. And then he goes on to talk about the consequences that ha- that, that has with their relationship with their people. Okay? But once the priest turns aside, he says, you caused many to stumble. You corrupted the covenant of Levi. And then he says, I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you have not kept my ways but have shown partiality in the law. Okay? But the first and, and very uh, like serious, intense accusation that causes the subsequent results that they themselves turned aside. So what does this tell me as a priest, 
as a servant, as a leader, as anyone who's trying to model the life of Christ. That if I am to mediate and intercede for humanity, if I am to serve as Christ in bringing the light of Christ to humanity, to be a part of the solution to the hatred and all of the corruption around me, I myself have to walk in the way of Christ. Okay? The first accusation wasn't that they are, um, you know, talking to a person in a terrible way or that they are abusing a person. But he says, no, you yourselves, okay, look at your own walk. Okay, look at your own heart. You turned aside from the way. And once your gaze shifts from God, you're going to take everyone down with you. Okay? So, that's why he says that their, their role is to guard that knowledge. Right? And if they guard that knowledge within their own life, Right? In verse 7 he says, The lips of a priest should guard knowledge. So you yourself are guarded. You yourself are firm and, and rooted in the faith. Okay, Think of that imagery that we spoke about in Ephesians. Whenever you think of putting on that armor to, to, to imitate a guard who is watchful and ready and prepared you yourself become fixed and rooted and grounded in the faith. Okay, you're grounded in that knowledge. And then that will provide light to others. Okay, now what's the very, very, very last accusation here? And I want to take a moment to, to dwell on this because this is very important. What's the very last accusation? The very last phrase in this whole section. Showing partiality in the law. Showing partiality in the law. Okay. So, what does that mean? Picking and choosing is how I interpreted it. So, some things that you like or think are simple, you'll do. Things that you think are more difficult, you won't do. Very good. And, and of course, you can extend that to what you talk about. Because he says here that a part of the role is to preach, right? So not only what you pick and choose to do, but what you pick and choose to preach, right? What you pick and choose to say, or even how you pick and choose to interpret God's law. Okay, how you pick and choose to deliver God's message. Right? And that's a very important component. St. John Chrysostom says, the task of the messenger is to proclaim what he was told. That's why the priest is called a messenger. Like the word messenger, angelos, is angel. Like the priest is to serve as an angel. Okay? 
It says, because the words he utters are not his own, but those of the one who sent him. So when we start to pick and choose what we want to deliver, when we start to pick and choose how we want to serve, how we want to minister, how we want to preach, then we basically try to wrap God in our own preferences. And, you know, we say, I'm just, I'm just going to go about serving, ministering, delivering your message according to my own convenience. Okay? And that's why he says, this caused many to stumble. This caused many to stumble. Right? He said, you've turned aside from the way and you've caused many to stumble in the law. And now, you remember what Christ said about those who cause others to stumble, especially the children. How did he put it? They won't enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, you could say that, but it's even worse. And then... Exactly, yeah, exactly. That's pretty bad too. Like you see a whole lot of terrible imagery here. Okay, to to be hypocritical, to have partiality, um, to to fail in walking in in the way of righteousness. He says that you know you you will have dung thrown on your faces, you'll be set aside from my presence. And if you cause a a little one to stumble, he says here that you will, according to the words of Christ himself, that you will have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. Okay? Again, it goes to show you like how serious this is. Okay? And more specifically in this very last accusation where he says that they have partiality. Okay? And as much as, you know, the, the primary uh, criticism is directed towards the partiality in the message that they want to consider or apply that we often also have partiality in how we deal with others. We have partiality in the way we minister. We have partiality in serving as priests. Okay? You think of how a priest should minister. That he is supposed to consider his whole flock as if they are one and the same. Okay, so I want to pause for a moment. Okay, and I want you to think of all the people that you like. Okay, and not necessarily that you got to think of every single person that you like, but at least think of, you know, three or four people, five people, a handful of people that you like. Okay, actually pause and do that. 
All right, now, I want you to think of a couple of people that you don't like. <laughs> and I hope this part is a little tougher for you, because we as Christians should have very few of those. But keep in mind, there's no sin in having someone you don't like, you know. You don't have to like everyone. You have to love everyone, but you don't have to like everyone. There's a difference. Okay? And it's okay if there's just someone you don't like. You know, your manager at work is giving you a hard time. You may not like them. You still got to love them. You still got to be Christ to those people. But you may not like them. Okay? Now, I want you to think of a couple of people that you don't like. Okay, hopefully you can think of someone. If you can't think of anyone, it's great. <laughs> it's great. You don't have a problem. Okay? Right? Not that you have a problem if you can't think of anybody. But in any case, you have these two sides. The people you like, the people that you don't like. Now, here's the real test. Is whenever we think about how we serve as Christ to both sides, okay? And how we can judge if I am Christ to the ones I like and as much as the ones I don't like is we can ask a few simple questions, okay? For starters, do my prayers occupy enough time and attention for the ones I don't like and as much as the ones I do like, okay? Um, do I judge the ones I don't like any more than the ones I do like? These are just questions to just ask yourself, right? Obviously, we should be praying for everyone. Of course, you might pray for your family and friends more because those are closer to you, right? But... If you don't care to pray for your enemies or the people that bother you, then there is a little bit of partiality in, in your heart. Okay, There is a little bit of partiality in your prayers. Okay, If you notice that you're more critical towards the people that you don't like. okay, And I'm not going to get into politics right now, but there are some politicians, whether it's the president or specific figures in Congress or whatever, that like no matter what they do, you're just not going to like it, okay? And you might be more critical or judgmental, okay? It might be somebody in your work or school or whatever, okay? And you know whenever another person might have done the very same thing, you might not have had a problem with it. But because it was that person, it just really gets under your skin, like, it's almost like it doesn't matter what they do, you just don't like it. Okay, so we've got to think about whether there's that sense of partiality there. We can think about our inclination to help. And this is a very critical one. I'm going to mention one that's even more significant. But this is right at the top as well. Are you just as inclined to help the people you don't like as much as the people you do like. And we ask ourselves and we've got to be honest. 
Okay, and if and there is partiality there, we got to come to terms with it and offer that sin at God's feet, and we tell Him, God, there is a little bit of partiality in my heart that I want you to eliminate. Okay, now the last one, and this is what Saint Isaac the Syrian says, is the most significant litmus test, like the test that will tell you everything, is whether you are equally afflicted and hurt by the pain of the people you don't like and as much as the people you do like. Okay, and this is such a powerful test to consider. If you find out that the person you don't like is hurt, if something bad happens, does it equally break your heart? And I'm not saying like, are you just going to care? You might care, which is fine, but does it really break your heart as much as it breaks your heart when you find out that someone you like is hurt? Okay, so those are all very simple questions. And the more we can eliminate that sort of partiality, the more that we become into the likeness of Christ. Okay, Uh, in Job 34 verse 11, it says... God's not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich man more than the poor, for they're all the work of his hands. So in as much as we eliminate that partiality, we become like God. We become like Christ. Alright? Any comments or questions there? I shamefully admit that I'm excited when my enemies fall. <laughs> I actually enjoy it. And um, I have more of that Old Testament type of vengeance. <laughs> like I would tell you, like cutting off their thumbs and their toes. I don't like that. It's like, give them Jesus. <laughs> because they deserve it. But I guess I'm not like God. So I have to work on that. Pray for me. May God give you and all of us the strength to do that. And I'm, I'm glad that you have the, the transparency and the, and, and the honesty to just admit that because to some degree, you know, we all struggle with that. Like none of us are perfect in our love. None of us are completely absent of partiality or just so perfect that, you know, we don't struggle with this at all. And we trust that God will provide the justice that God will serve the the right consequences to everyone and we we pray you know we pray it's a process that we progress on the path of purity and holiness to love the same way that Christ loves and it's a it's a just a journey yeah, but we all struggle with that I'm glad you actually have the honesty and the authenticity the transparency to Share that, because we all do struggle with that. All right, now my... Glad to know I'm not alone. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're not. You're definitely not. (laughs) Um, Now, my next question is this. If you are like me and Regina, who struggle with this, (laughs) if if you struggle with this, which I think we, we all, to some extent, do struggle with this, What's the cure? Like, what's the cure 
for our partiality? What's the cure for us to eliminate this and to really be like God, to really be like Christ? Praying for them. Very good. Very good. Now, sometimes I can't pray for those people that are really bothering me, that are really getting under my skin. Okay, How can I cross that, that bridge? How can I like break through that wall to, to have the ability to, to pray for them, to... To be without partiality. Let's jump to the next couple of verses because I think once we read this, it gives us the answer. All right, so let's go to verses 10 to 12. And we'll wrap up with these three verses right here because we're just 10 minutes away from our close. So he says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob For the man who does this, any to witness or answer or to bring an offering to the Lord of hosts. Okay, again, take a moment to read that one more time and then we'll discuss it together. All right, so what's the cure? What's the cure for our partiality? How can we love and pray for those who irritate us? How can we break down that wall of partiality? By looking at others as uh, brothers and sisters. Christ, since God, we have the same Father, same God has created. Very good. Perfect. So the cure is in the recognition of our brotherhood. The cure is recognizing that we have the same Father. Like, we're the same blood. Okay? We don't look at color. We don't look at gender. We don't look at race. We don't look at anything but the fact that we're a family. Okay, And especially in our Coptic tradition as Egyptians that I'm, I'm very glad to say are very, very hospitable and the sense of family is just so deeply rooted in our life. I remember um, a couple of people 
um, that came to, to visit my house, some school friends, while I was in high school. And as soon as they walk in, like, my mom and dad would be like, well, more so my mom, because, you know, she's, uh, she's the one that's always trying to feed us and to take care of us. So the first thing that she would say when someone comes to visit, like, are you hungry? Can I make you something? Like, automatically that person is like her own son, you know? My, my dad would welcome him and, and all of a sudden, like, I feel like this is my brother, okay? And when I go visit another house, especially if it's an Egyptian house, all of a sudden, I'm like the son of those parents or the brother of the children in this house. And like I really get treated like I'm a part of the family. Yeah, and this extends to anyone who is Egyptian or white or black. It doesn't matter. Like once you enter our house, like you are a family. Okay? Now, you got to think of all humanity in this sense. That once they enter your house, like once they enter your heart, deep down inside, like this is your brother. Like deep down inside, your dad would equally die for that person as much as he would die for you. Okay? Your dad, who is our father, our heavenly father, sent his son to die for that person loves that person in as much as he loves you. Like There's a sense of unity and a sense of bond that comes from knowing that we belong to the same Father. Like, we are the same family. Okay? It's easier said than done. But, you know when, when you experience something, when it just clicks, it registers, you notice that, like, yeah, that totally makes sense. Like, all it takes is for you to recognize that this person is a part of your family. And it's easy for me to talk about it because I experienced it in a culture that, thankfully, is family-oriented and has, like, welcoming arms to people that walk into our home. Okay? I'm thankful to have had that experience. Others may not have been so fortunate. You know, others may grow up in a home that are a little bit more cautious, okay? And not anybody that walks into their home is automatically considered a brother or a sister, okay? But there's something beautiful and something so special that once you see the effect and the power of what what that specific mindset can do, it just blows you away. Okay? Actually, a, a wonderful example just came across my mind. Um, I forget what the movie is called, but it's... Uh, I think it's called like um, a, a different kind of me or not so different as me. I'll, I'll find the name exactly, but it's the story whenever um, this this couple, they're like struggling with their marriage, but the woman decides to befriend one of the 
one of the homeless guys and after she befriends him um, she welcomes him into his home and his whole life is transformed and everybody around her is like totally confused and they criticize her like what are you doing and they didn't understand it but to her this person was like officially part of her family okay and of course like it's scary to think about just inviting a stranger into your home like that and i'm not saying that's the way we got to do it in order to fulfill the commandments but at least in our heart we got to apply this and that's what's going to break down the wall of partiality that divides humanity all right Any comments or questions? Abana, I have a question and a comment. Yeah. So, thank you for this reminder because God did reveal that to me before that I have to look at people as, you know, even those that may hurt me or um, as his children. And just like if we have more than one child and, you know, they're bickering or they're fighting. We don't want to kill one of our children. We want them to reconcile. So mm. that's a great analogy. And thank you for reminding me of that. But my question is, how do you reconcile that way of thinking when you look at um, King David, when he was fighting his enemies and he was saying, you know, God, contend with those who contend with me, fight against those that fight against me, you know, take your shield and, you know, and basically curse them and, like, how do you reconcile that? Was that just his own thought process or was he really being led by God? So that's a wonderful, that yeah, that's a wonderful question. So before I, I share my thoughts, I think this is a wonderful opportunity to allow others to answer as well, because this could spark a very good discussion. But um, I have some thoughts on my mind, but I'll give others a chance to, to answer as well so that I could hear from everybody too. prophecies right in the sense that they were talking about pointing to christ so as much as like david is a figure as a type of christ so in that sense he's you know the people that you know the people that crucified christ and whatnot those are the people that really david is is referring to more so than you know the enemies that david himself was you know fighting uh, that's just my two cents i could be wrong yeah yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense that he is definitely a figure of Christ or a type of Christ. Um, and he exemplifies that a lot in his life. Um, I, I will just share my thoughts just for the sake of time. Um, and we can go back to this as we start next week as well, if there's anyone else who has uh, a thought on their mind they want to share. But I would say the the quintessential model that we find in David, like the perfect example, the paragon, the, the climax of David's beauty and holiness is found 
during his um, his time fleeing from Saul. Okay, like after David struggles with that whole process, David starts to mess up a little. Okay, his king, his kingdom starts to rise, and um, you know, in um, in one battle, he was supposed to go fight, but he kind of sits back and he lets his guard down. And then that's whenever he's enticed by Bathsheba and um, he commits fornication and he has her husband murdered. And it's all downhill from there until David recovers and he gets back up on his feet. So before his fall, like whenever God says like, this is a man whose heart is after my heart. It seems that the proof of the fact that David's heart really is after God's heart is the way he deals with Saul. And you see that Saul is like enemy number one, enemy of the state, like the guy who is out to destroy David. And on a couple of cases, David had Saul like, at his fingertips. And to the extent that when he found him in a cave, he went in, he cut off a corner of his robe, then like, he walked back out. Saul woke up, he went out there, and he was furious. But David says, like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Look at this. I could have killed you. Like, you're my enemy. Or at least that's what you think. But I don't consider you my enemy. And he says that I have nothing against you, even though David could have said a million things. And, and he could have had so much against Saul. But he says, I don't want to hurt you. To me, you're like my brother. And he showed him mercy, even though this is whenever he rightfully could have stood his ground. He was already the anointed king. And he could have said, this is when justice is served. But in every case, and if you notice this too, David would never go and defeat a specific nation or an army or even whenever he went to, um, to fight Goliath in the early phase of his maturity. It was always at the instructions of God. Like God would direct him to do those things. He would never act of his own will. Right? So he always left the the task of defeating his enemies in God's hands. As for David, he said, I'm just going to love, I'm going to show mercy. If God wants to defeat my enemies, or if he wants to direct me to war and to fight this or that, I'll do it. And you'll notice in some cases where the Israelites go and try to fight against some people, but it's not blessed by God. And they always lose. Because... The victory comes from the Lord. If we want to defeat our enemies by our own strength, we're going to fail. And David was the same case. You'll notice a little bit later, even though he showed Saul mercy, and Saul said, okay, I get it. You're a nice guy. I'm going to leave you alone. A little bit later, Saul was again out for the hunt, and he was trying to kill David. David saw him lying down, and he... He did basically the same thing. It was like instant replay. He went out and he grabbed the spear that was 
laid down next to his head, and he walked and he said, again, I could have done the same thing, but I didn't. So it goes to show us that like, in as much as God was defeating David's enemies, it was not his own role, his own task to accomplish that justice or to accomplish that sense of vengeance. He didn't take matters in his own hands at all. And that's what we as Christians are called to do. We're called to turn the other cheek until we're crucified. That's what it means to be Christ. God will take matters. He's very well capable of defending us. He'll take matters into his own hands and defeat our enemies whenever it's his will, whenever the time is right, whenever it's to our own benefit or our own advantage. Okay? Otherwise, he wants us to just follow in his footsteps, to turn the other cheek, to love even to the extent that we're crucified. And that's what we see in David. We see in David nothing but love and mercy. All right, so any comments or questions? I don't know if that answers your question, Regina, but uh, feel free to share your thoughts. We can talk about it next week. (laughs) Okay, all right. Good, so we'll start there next week then, and then you can... Uh, dwell on it for these next few days and uh, we'll have a good place to spark our discussion at the start of next week. All right, so we'll all bow our heads to pray and then we'll close here. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We ask you, Lord, to hear us as we pray with all thanksgiving, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us a stay our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. To Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.